This is the Average Guy Network, and you have found Cyber Frontiers, show number 66, recorded on March 16th, 2022. Here on Cyber Frontiers, we explore cybersecurity, big data, and the technologies that are shaping the future. If you have questions, comments, or contributions, you can always contact us. If you'd like Christian to talk about something, actually, point that way. Uh, you can always send us an email, jim at theaverageguy.tv. You can contact the Christian directly if you want, christian at theaverageguy.tv. Find me on Twitter, at jcollison. And, of course, Christian is at Whisper. Don't forget that theaverageguy.tv. Powered by Maple Grove Partners, get secure, reliable, high-speed hosting from people that you know and you trust and some fantastic stuff. Of course, the average guy.tv powered that way. MapleGrovePartners.com plans start as little as $10 a month. Christian, we did two of these in two months. We've set a new record. Welcome back. Yeah, great to be back. Uh, I feel like we managed to Zoom through 2021 fairly uh, in a strange, quick way the last time. So I'm yeah. glad we're able to now uh, start from uh, current timestamp and uh, continue the conversation. We have a guest with us tonight. Ashton Webster is with us. And, and Ashton is a longtime friend of the show. He's been on uh, several times uh, in the past. Uh, all three of us, I think at some point in time, worked together um, at Gallup. And uh, Ashton, great to see you uh, back and welcome back. Yeah, good to see you guys. I'm, I have to look back and see what the last number Cyber Frontiers I was on. Uh, yeah, it's a, listen, it's been a while for us too. We skipped 18 months in the process and have been kind of bringing it back. So I'm sure it's been a while. I thought I'd seen you like a year ago and it was probably like four years yeah, ago. It doesn't feel that long ago, actually. No, it, it doesn't. Well, well, great to great to have you back. Ashton, why don't you just give us a quick, uh, if it's all right, Christian, give us a quick update on where you're at and what you're doing. Sure. Um, yeah, so I work at Capital One. I'm a software engineer there. I've been there for about four years now, and I work on their. Uh, I worked on a couple teams in their like retail bank department, which kind of with a, a focus on fraud detection and prevention. Um, so they have a couple of different for like every different type of money movement that you can imagine. That's not credit card. Um, we we try to have systems and models that detect and, and prevent fraud there. So um, that's what I've worked on the last couple of years there. And outside of that, um, just like to read and play chess and sometimes Christian will join me on that. So <laughs> well, great. That's that's right. Yeah. Tonight's show all started because there was a potential chess tournament brewing uh, on the, on the, the virtual interwebs. So. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Also, um, one other thing I just probably should mention is there is a uh, a dog sleeping right here, mm. and she might get up and crawl behind me at some point, or or just bark randomly because sometimes she does that. So just, just mute if uh, if she does start barking, just mute, and that's that's perfectly okay. It's a new world. There's all those kinds of things have happened, and uh, and you just you just push past them. So, Ashton, thanks for coming out tonight. Appreciate sure. it. Christian, why don't you get us started? Uh, I think you've got a topic to get us rolling on tonight. What uh, What do you have for us? Yeah, just really a, a warm-up topic and update as we follow um, just cybersecurity in the news. Um, Biden signed in the last 24 hours of us recording this show on March 16th, um, the um, uh, government funding bill and attached in that government funding bill was a rider uh, piece of legislation that 
had attempted to be attached in a previous funding bill and was ultimately scrapped. Um, but they were able to get past this time the Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act. Um, and so this act, um, one of the primary call-outs, it mandates that um, any company that is considered part of critical infrastructure uh, would be required now to uh, report to Department of Homeland Security's, you know, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, known as CISA, um, seven, within 72 hours of a data breach or within 24 hours of paying ransom um, on a ransomware attack. Um, more interesting is that it adds a, a, a legal lever and mechanism that didn't exist previously as an authority for CISA, where if companies fail to comply with uh, providing cyber incident reporting of this nature, um, CISA actually has subpoena power now to go um, discover data and records that would pertain to a company's failure to um, disclose a cyber incident uh, as critical infrastructure. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, we talk a lot about on the show, both um, information disclosure and sharing, as well as, um, you know, uh, just cyber intelligence and sharing. Um, and I thought it was pretty notable that uh, this legislation kind of slipped into the um, the funding bill without much um, much ado about nothing. It was fairly quiet in the in the news stream this week. Christian, what do you think that changes? When we think of the landscape of, you know, it, seem, it, it seems like we're always talking about a breach of some kind all over the place, right? Last episode, we kind of recapped uh, the last part of 2020 and 2021. And there were a lot of, I mean, it seems like there's more than there's ever been. What do you think, what does this change practically from a posturing standpoint? And that's probably not the right way to say it, but for organizations, what are they going to have to do differently now that they didn't do before? Yeah, I mean, and we even talked about it a little bit in the last show. I think there's going to be, increased onus across business sizes to think of the cybersecurity incident plans and disaster recovery plans as major, you know, um, administrative pieces of any company, right? Typically these were nice to haves. So they're increasingly becoming mandatory. Um, for a long time, they were mandatory for what we would consider the big players, the big C-corps, the big government agencies. Now we're starting to see um, those levers and mechanisms get even stronger in other big players. I'd consider critical infrastructure to be a fairly big player, right? Your electric, your gas, your oil industry, your energy sector, you know, critical infrastructure. Um, but I think this is going to continue to funnel down um, at state and local level as well. So I expect to see a continuing emergence of what I just call legal mechanisms or legislative levers by which uh, companies will be held to a higher standard when it comes to either disclosure related to, um, you know, data breaches, which has been around for a while, but that's typically like loss of information of a customer, et cetera. This is really actually getting, I think, an, another layer deeper, more into just any kind of cybersecurity related concern is not going to be able to fly under the radar the way it might have uh been a company's discretionary choice 10 years ago to make that kind of call. Christian, do you think with that flying under the radar, you're saying, and maybe uh, these companies weren't making the investment they needed to make to get 
compliant or to get to to you know to be able to defend better with this additional sunlight do you think that'll change funding for them or they'll have to fund these um fund these initiatives more to make sure they're able to respond in the way that they have to now well, I mean, it's kind of twofold, right? With more information coming into agencies like CISA, they're going to need to continue to staff um, incident response teams and folks that can deal with that kind of data coming in. So I do think that there's some kind of hiring and, and growth factor there. I absolutely think there is probably for larger companies, um, you know, easier to do that, right? To scale up or down both compliance-related individuals as well as engineering-related individuals who would be relevant to this discussion. I think it's much harder to do at a small business level to check all of these boxes and kind of have your your compliance um, portfolio together, so to speak, especially when you're starting out. Um, so they're actually, I, you know, one of the things I think could come out of this is a subculture industry in and of itself. What I mean by that is much like, you know, many Americans choose to have their taxes prepared because they don't want to make a mistake on a 50 page form due every year. They outsource that and pay a fee and have someone take care of it. I really see a lot of small businesses going that way, right? Just like an LLC might retain legal counsel for, you know, being incorporated and basic kind of administrative stuff. I see this type of, um, uh, growing legal requirements being something that small businesses are going to seek uh, third-party relief to help them mm -hmm. be in compliance with the law. Mm -hmm. When we say critical infrastructure, what 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 does that kind of include? Just for the average guy listening to this, what what are those? Just give me an example of what those what fits into that um, that area. Yeah, I, actually, it's it's funny because I first learned about these when the shutdown happened in some respects where they had very specifically listed which companies and which sectors were considered both essential workforce. I'm sure everyone's familiar with that term. That was a keyword of 2020. Um, when we talk about uh, critical infrastructure, we're really talking about um, a, a ranging set of things from... Um, what I call the class of industrial control system based companies, oil, electric, natural gas, um, heating, et cetera. Um, critical infrastructure as a larger workforce also comprises, you know, anything from communication sector, defense industrial base, critical manufacturing, um, even food and agriculture. Um, we, you know, when you actually look at, um, what they're defining as critical infrastructure operators, I think that's going to be a smaller subset of folks than the larger, like what are the sectors of the essential workforce, but you can be guaranteed like the, think of it as utility companies at the bare minimum for what would fall in scope for this new uh, power and authority that CISA will have. Ashton, I'm going to ask you to weigh in on this before we do, since you're joining us. It's been a while since you joined us. I, I will say your opinions are your own and you don't represent your employer in any of these. We have to be very, I don't, I don't know if there's any other disclosures that you need to make on that. We need to be careful about that uh, uh, these days as you're speaking. But Ashton, as you're looking at this, you know, as you're looking at this, this bill, this new regulatory requirement. I know you spent a lot of time studying this when, uh, when you're in school and some work, anything you want to add to it? Um, 
to be honest, I'm not super familiar with this, but I was curious, I guess this is, I'm going to kind of turn this around on Christian, but um, when you mentioned like utilities, I wonder if included in there would be like uh, the, uh, you know, data utilities and, and uh, meaning like the internet infrastructure, like would that also Mm. fall under there? And I I guess when you said that, I was thinking like power and and water and like uh, those sort of things. But do you know if that would also include like, uh, you know your 5g network or even your your like internet networks yeah right on so like water is a great example of something that's considered part of that critical infrastructure definition that's a good utility to call out that wasn't in my example rap sheet um something like your internet service provider or your 5g is um it is considered part of that essential workforce sector definitions that CISA has. I don't believe it is part of the actual definition that is defined as critical infrastructure. Um, so they have a whole communication sector that would span 5G internet service providers, et cetera. Um, at least my understanding and what's come out so far is that's not in scope um, for this, but um, we'll, we'll need to sharpen our pencils and confirm that in the show notes and maybe provide the, the actual list that came in the scope with, um, with this legislation. Well, it's like with any new legislation that's coming out, it takes a while to flush all this out to figure out what is, what isn't rules have to be made. There'll be additional committees and groups that are put together to kind of, you know, to, to begin to say, okay, what does this mean? Christian, in your opinion, does this strengthen? Is this, is this? Do you see this leading to better outcomes from a cybersecurity perspective? Does this make us better in being able to to you know ransomware has just become a gigantic problem? Does this make us better? Um, you know, it's interesting. I think it makes us faster in some respects. Um, it also helps us collect data to be better in the future. And what I mean by that is, um, the more data a central kind of clearinghouse, so to speak, like um, like CISA as an agency can, you know, study this data that they collect and the trends over folks who are experiencing ransomware. It can help us get better at how to defend. I think for a while, though, it's just going to help us get better at incident response, right? Especially because there are things that CISA and other um, stakeholders can do to help provide incident response capabilities that, you know, may extend beyond what the company as a individual entity is prepared to handle. Right. So I do think it helps us get better. Uh, It helps us respond a little bit faster. Um, I'm not certain that um, um, I'm not certain that it's going to, um, you know, fundamentally, you know, create a dramatic improvement in just this actual security posture. I still think, you know, design patterns and reference architectures and, you know, companies following better compliance guidelines, that that's important. That's, I think, more of a focus to plugging the leaking hole than the reporting aspect. But I do think the reporting aspect is definitely something that matters when it comes to, you know, how are you dealing with your you know, overall incident response, which, you know, once it happens, it's like, yeah, you want to be as prepared as possible to uh, minimize the damage to the institution as you possibly can. 
Christian, with all its oh, go ahead, Ashton. Sorry, I was just gonna piggyback on one one thing on that. Do you think that this will also give like an opportunity for some like retrospectives on on past incidents, or like having this repository of of breaches that are being reported to CISA? Uh, will that like I'm hoping my just my take on it is hopefully they would like use that data to say how can we prevent this going forward, or like these are the common types of vulnerabilities we're seeing that can be remediated in this way. Um, I don't know. Just interested in your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, right on. Um, I I think it does. It, it absolutely, you know, the aggregation of that kind of data and the ability for cyber defenders and, um, you know, cyber analysts to study historical data is super helpful in understanding, like, where did it go wrong? Um, and there's obviously a lot of raw data that isn't something that you're going to get from summary level information or from, you know, non-standardized reporting. So um, I think that, yes, in, in short, we're going to see, um, we're going to see the ability for, you know, I call, I call, I think of CISA in many respects as a centralized clearinghouse um, for being able to do that, you know, over time, um, over time, CISA has really um, matured both in its capability to provide um, and play that role, as well as help proactively um, defend threats. And they're a big part of the, you know, the, the flip side of it, right, which is proactively telling companies and organizations when there is a um, cyber threat or a APT or a zero day or a new vulnerability disclosure that companies need to be concerned with, they're able to rapid fire, get that key information out to organizations that can act on it. Um, I think this only helps them kind of fine tune that capability uh, as we move forward. Christian, in the article, it says that the uh, measure, um, the measure becoming law is a complete reversal from only a few months ago when it's stripped from the annual defense policy bill. Do you think the? I mean, it's March 2022. If you're listening to this in real time or even months from now, we, we kind of all know what's going on. Is there a, is this a little bit of a response to that? Do you think of, of some of the tension and and uh, and potential conflict that's going on in uh, in Europe? Yeah, no, absolutely. Right. So um, we've seen a lot of headlines about um, different cyber threat actors and different things to be concerned with um, just globally in response to the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And um, certainly um, the this CISA legislation here is, is you know, very on the top of mind of legislators who are, um, you know, worried about the cybersecurity posture and the defense. Um, so from that perspective, yeah, very, very well aligned and inspired to um, the increased volume of uh, cyber threat adversaries that we're seeing globally, right? Uh, we've seen a lot of news reporting around attacks to banks, critical infrastructure, um, information disclosure and leakage. Um, so this fits very well into some of the global geopolitical um, conflicts and, and the cyber um, digital twin, so to speak, of what's happening um, in, in the physical world. So, 
Ashton, any questions for Christian on this? I mean, I think we've I think we've done a pretty good job of covering it. Any other questions you want to ask? No. Uh, yeah, I'm going to be honest. I didn't know about this until Christian brought it up. So yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's definitely an interesting step, though. I kind of hope this also gives some transparency on, like, just having that accountability of having to report when there is a breach and do so in specific timelines will hopefully – you know, motivate the right kind of behaviors going forward to, to prevent yeah. so like not try and sweep it under the rug, you know? Well, I think what's interesting is it's probably, you know, of, of many of the breaches that we have seen over the last couple of years in, in the, those organizations necessarily wouldn't fit into this category. So you, you kind of think, well, okay, so it's not really fixing that, but it, to what you just said, Ashton, is I think it can set a precedent that that hopefully will make its way downstream <laughs> that will get some more accountability on in some of these areas to just make sure that we don't have bad actors or we don't, you know, to, I think Christian's words, uh, organizations trying to sweep it under the carpet to say, well, I mean, if maybe if we just ignore it, we won't have to. And yet it's just it continues just to happen more and more. And it's just. You know, it's, it, we've got to get, it, it's getting worse, not better. <laughs> you know, it's seemingly, that's just my, that's my pedestrian view. Yeah. So Christian. Well, and, and, and to that end, it kind of segues into um, kind of one of the things I really wanted to pick Ashton's brain about tonight is, you know, being in the financial services sector and industry. Um, you know, we, we talk about, data breaches and some of these, you know, other thematic headlines always seeming to be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And historically, um, you know, my credit card's been, you know, hacked or, you know, what's this unexpected a thousand dollar charge or why, why, why do I have three orders of Nikes, uh, in my credit card statement? Like, what is your 50,000 foot view Ashton of, where the industry was, let's say, three to five years ago with being able to handle um, financial fraud just as a general category? And what are some of the technologies and uh, capabilities that have improved where we are with fraud detection uh, today and keeping people's financial um, livelihoods, for lack of a better word, in a secure and healthy place? I think, uh, well, I, I, I've definitely seen like a trend towards having, uh, I, I think even like three to five years ago, there were these sort of, there was artificial intelligence and machine learning models that were assisting with this. But I think those have uh, just taken in so many more different types of features. And I think like on a, a lot of, like, it's not so hard to build the models. It's just to get all that data in a way that's actually uh, usable. So I think that's one big step that I've kind of noticed even within like my experience at, at uh, Capital One is just seeing like having having the ability to access all these different uh, categories of data that are coming from different parts of, of you know, the company and also outside of the company, like integrating things. For example, Zelle, um, there are, are data sets like provided by that network and information provided by that network that can be useful for detecting fraud. So having that that sort of trend towards you know more usable data within the company that that's like trending towards being usable in these models and also outside of the company being able to pull that in, um, I think that's that's one direction. I think that's making things uh, 
at least like significantly improving the models. Um, another sort of trend I think is uh, hopefully it looks like going forward. I, th I think there's like a desire to kind of be more less reactive and more proactive. Uh, it's a tricky one. I, I think just like more and more um, what, what I've seen a lot is like some, some fraud ring happens for a specific type of transaction, whether it's ACH or, or um, whether it's a, a certain check deposit or something like that. And in, in response to that, we make a rule or something to just prevent that one specific thing. And then the fraudsters figure out some other way to do it that's slightly different, or it's like just below the threshold or whatever it is. So I, I, I think that's like one area where at least going forward, it's still, it's probably an issue five years ago, it's an issue now, but going forward, trying to kind of break that cycle and, and see things that are um, like in advance, either targeting areas that could be vulnerable before they happen or just setting more sort of general rules that, that don't, um, don't get into this like cat and mouse chase as much, but I, I, it's totally possible in five years, there's still things like that that are going to happen. Um, but I think that's, that's one area that a lot of banks are facing right now challenges. In. And I, I guess uh, help, help us understand and at least help me understand like when you are working with a partner like Zelle or any of the other kind of financial technology capabilities that banks are integrating with, are there any common data formats or standards by which, um, you know, fraud or threat information um, is being shared between these companies in order to, you know, defend people's financial data? Um, you know, we've talked about how more broadly speaking, like we just aforementioned topic about how, you know, companies have to do some type of standard reporting and disclosure to CISA in the case of critical infrastructure. Is there any kind of standard model or framework by which the financial sectors and industry are sharing the necessary threat intelligence in order to improve the fraud detection and, and response times to these types of scams? Yeah, to be honest, I, I'm not going to be able to give you a, a very good answer to that one. I'm just not that that tied into those specific uh, like broader networks. If there are those that are sharing those data, so those data, um, I think for for Zelle, I know that re at least recently we had started to like tie into. Uh, I believe it's called Zelle Front Indicators. So there is some either like API or data set that's available to to give information about potential fraud on Zelle, and I think. There, there. I, I hope to see, like, as a trend, more sharing of data and more standardization on on consuming that, so that if there is uh, potentially an issue affecting multiple banks, they kind of can can share that among them rather than making it like a kind of competitive advantage to be able to to handle it. So I don't know what what the trend is going to be. Whether it's going to be like we don't want to. I, I mean, think like if there's no regulation, it's going to probably be like, we don't want to share exactly what we're doing because it's a competitive advantage that we're not as impacted by these fraud rings. Um, so I, I think it'd have to be kind of like a, at a, a regulation level, they'd have to, to enforce that. I'm not sure what's already there, if anything, or what the direction is going to be, but that's um, just kind of what we're talking uh, Ashton, Christian, really quick. For those that don't know what Zelle is, can you talk? What what is that? Is it a broker between between banks to transfer money? Can you talk a little bit about that? So it's for it's basically like instant funds transfer between uh, two bank accounts with uh, 
with a network, like basically banks participate in this network that is hosted by the third party. I think Zelle is its own company or organization that's that's kind of like separate from the banks. Uh, and banks participate in it to make it easy to transfer money between accounts. And it's selling point. It, it, you can't send a lot of money on it. I think you can, most banks, the maximum is like 2000 to 2500 around there per day. Uh, and then they might have monthly limits as well. But it's nice, like if you are paying back, like I, I use a lot for, you know, you're out with friends for, for drinks or food or something. And you just want to pay somebody like 20 bucks or something like that. It's really easy because it goes directly from your account to their account. Um, and it's, it just happens within like a couple of seconds. Um, but it's a little different than like, uh, ACH or, or, uh, that's the automated clearing house where there is like kind of a third party where the money stays for a day or two. And then it takes, you can do much larger amounts, but you might use this more for like paying your rent. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you kind of have different tools for different jobs. This one's probably best fit for, um, like a replacement for Zelle or, um, Sorry, a replacement for Venmo or PayPal if you just have like small amounts moving from person to person. Okay. How how would you compare Zelle, compare and contrast Zelle to something like Venmo? Um, I think one difference is for 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 Venmo you kind of have. I think they, they now have, if you're like, you have to categorize yourself as either a, a storefront or a person, right? Like they now have fees for if you're using it to kind of mm-hmm. uh, circumvent like normal routes of paying for things as a, a storefront. I think um, that's pretty new too. I think that yeah. just recently get kicked in. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely intended only for like peer to peer payments. Um, so I don't, to be honest, I don't know all the like, nitty gritty details between the two, but it's the, the one nice thing about it actually is that it's, it's built, it tends to be built into the bank accounts, like the bank apps or, or website or whatever itself. So you don't have to install this third party application. You don't install Venmo. Uh, you just go to the app and, and kick it off from there, from your account to their account. And it's also set up so that they have it. If they, you know, you opt into it. So when you set up the account or at any time after you have the account um, for checking accounts, you would say, you know, yeah, I do want to participate in Zelle and it ties it to either your phone number or your email or both. And then when you want to send it to somebody, that's all you need. You just put in their email or their phone and it says, you know, this person's name according to the account is Christian Johnson. Uh, is this correct? And then you make the payment that way. So those are kind of one, one advantage, advantage of Zelle over PayPal or Venmo is that it's just like all within the, the banks. You don't need a third party app or third party account to, to do these transfers. That's actually one big reason I like it is I also don't really necessarily trust um, PayPal or, or Venmo to, or just like, I don't want another place where I have to enter in my, my bank account number. So mm-hmm. it's kind of one less, I mean, I guess it's still going to go through Zelle ultimately, but at least I don't have to have another password and username combination. Sure. Sure. Ta- talk to us a little bit about, um, not necessarily the data aspects. Like, so we've talked, we, you know, we touched on how data and ML is still kind of a little bit of a cat and mouse game with um, trying to anticipate fraud, but talk about some of the security controls and protections that have changed in the last five years with respect to just securing financial transactions. Right. So like, for example, um, you know, as a, 
Capital One customer, if I don't, if I go to a gas pump that it doesn't recognize as a normal gas pump for me, I'm probably going to get a text message saying, "Hey, was that you?" How has that evolved over the last few years, and where do you see it going? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's it's a heck of a lot more advanced than it was <laughs> five years ago. Um, I think so. You're saying like when to to just like verify whether transactions are. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one use case, right? But we, there are so many schemes today that involve um, identifying whether or not you are really the person doing that thing, right? Everything from like people losing their homes because someone performs title theft and they perform title theft by convincing a bank or lender that you are you leveraging the money out of your house. And then the next thing you know, you have a loan in your name for the full value of your house. Uh, that's obviously a very extreme example, but it's kind of the same fundamental concept, right? Like how has the finance technology gotten better at detecting that you as the person are really taking these actions on behalf of your money in a secure way um, when you're not always you know, walking into a physical bank um, and performing a transaction? Yeah, I, to be honest, I haven't really touched on that as much in my my role and just like the things that I've worked on. Um, so I'll answer like a slightly different question, which is not what you asked, but where I have seen like dramatic change. Uh, kind of like the the other side of that is, um, so there are like so many advanced tools and, and models and rules that are really good at identifying whether it's you or not when you're making a transaction or just whether your transaction is fraudulent. Um, but what I have seen a big change in is how those are like managed and deployed and um, just, yeah, just how they're managed at the the code and infrastructure level. Um, I think that has in a lot of companies and based on what I've seen, it's like dramatically changed in terms of the scans, the, uh, the, the company regulations, the process for that. So that it's very, very um just like it's a totally different experience than it was. It's sort of like the wild west where you could just get away with deploying anything as long as it ran a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. Uh, I mean, I've, I haven't been in the grand scheme of things. I haven't been a software professional software engineer for that long, but my experience, you know, four or five years ago is totally different than what it is now. Um, just in terms of how many different steps and checks that are performed and should be performed on the code to ensure that it's not deploying vulnerabilities or, um, even just bugs and things like that. Um, so seeing like that, if you've heard the shifting left of, of cybersecurity scanning, meaning um, don't run the scans right before or even once it's already deployed or uh, after it's deployed, like checking that there's vulnerabilities or viruses or whatever, run it bef before you even check in the code. Run it when the code is written on in your, in your uh, editor or before it gets into the, the shared code repository. So things like that, I've seen like dramatic change just in terms of how, uh, so that the code is one piece and then the infrastructure as well, just having constant scans run on, on that. Um, I mean, it's not, it's not a secret that Capital One heavily uses AWS. And I think a lot of, that's the direction a lot of banks are gonna go to be using um, cloud, cloud technology and, and cloud infrastructure and having scans that can detect those vulnerabilities and react to those quickly is I think like a huge change I've seen uh, in, in recent years.
so I know that's not the question you really asked, but no, I mean, it, 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 but it's a, it's an interesting segue, right? Because uh, what you're calling out is that the actual change in software development practices of companies is playing a large role in our ability to ship and deliver secure code. Um, you know, I think this was a, a very salient um, example for many companies a few months ago with Log4j, right? I mean, Java is deployed to over 3 billion devices, I think is what they like to advertise. But I mean, it's just the expanse and the reach of Java as a code base is is wild. Um, and the expanse of common Apache libraries such as Log4j is equally as pervasive. And, you know, here here comes this drop of a zero day vulnerability that allows remote code execution, um, for logging. I mean, it's, it, it's crazy in terms of its level of impact yet the blast radius of this was huge because everyone was using this. Um, and I think one of the critical observations is if you actually have continuous, um, deployment and integration of software and you have, high-quality automated checks that can ensure you're not regression, regressing with new changes, that does have a dramatic impact on your ability to um, respond quickly, um, both to both reactively to security as well as proactively to identifying security defects with code before it ships. Um, but then also just, you know, um, even in in normal operation cases where the quicker you can more iteratively get these features and changes out, the, you know, the more appetite there is for, you know, raising the quality of security features and functionality in software services, because it is not a major evolutionary waterfall style undertaking to get that next thing out. So, you know, in your experience over the last few years at Capital One, how has um, CDCI technologies influenced the way you think about, um, you know, delivering code into production as well as addressing um, the security threat model of the services that you support? Yeah, it's changed so dramatically. Like I remember when I started there, um, we basically like a lot of teams, I think were kind of just like, practically, you know, SSHing or connecting to the prod server and, and copying the code up there and copying it to the right location and running it. And uh, there was a lot of like big, big issues that impacted the whole company that were caused by those types of changes. And it's, it's just in terms of like the, the regulations and, and like, I mean, like in, in company regulations and, and practices and um, scans and all these things, that's like virtually impossible now as it sort of should be. Um, the flip side of that is like it's it's a lot more challenging to get things into production, um, which you know that that friction is good in some way because you're there. There's a lot there's a lot fewer prod incidents now as well, um, but there's so many different areas where things can go wrong. Like it, you just need one foothold for an attacker or one even just bug that can cause a terrible customer experience to. Um, really have quite a negative impact. So it's like they're very like, I think a lot about, you know, asymmetric risk and being, you know, best case, you make some change, 
you're probably going to roll out a lot of times it's not even a new feature. It's just some small bug fix, but if things go wrong, you could impact, you could either introduce a new vulnerability that wasn't there before and have millions or, you know, millions of dollars of loss or just have a really terrible customer impact if, if things don't go right. So uh, it's kind of like, I think in cybersecurity in general, it's kind of one of those things where you're, you're gambling to make $1 and risking to lose a million dollars with, with some, you know, probability on each of those probably just a small chance of losing a million dollars, but you only need it to hit it once to, to come out in the red. So um, yeah, I think like more and more it's trending towards just more, more uh, structure and, and um, scans and tools that are all built to make it really difficult to release bad code, whether that's uh, introducing vulnerabilities or bugs as well. Um, and I think it's trending in the right direction, but it is like it puts more uh, effort on the software developers to to really meet every single one of those checks. And it, it, it isn't as insignificant amount of time that's just spent being compliant with, you know, this is the new enterprise mandate. Everything has to be on X version or using X scan or whatever it is that, that we spend a lot of time on that sort of stuff. Um, and I think like at a low level view, it kind of feels like, all right, this is the next scan that we're adding, our next tool that we have to use. But at a high level, I think it's it's really making the whole machine um, just a lot more secure. So sorry for my whole rant on that, but I think no, it, I, I like to hear, I like to hear that. I, it's funny because you know I was in banking, geez, um, twenty five years ago, and I didn't, I wasn't coding, but I, I did work uh, close to that area, and you know we'd have one big change a year. Like it, it just a whole different, you know, we, we were on, we were on AS 400 and mainframe. So it's a completely different world. Right. Mm-hmm. But banking moves so slow in those days, like innovation because of all those, because it was just hard innovations didn't come very quickly. And I think then as I was getting out of banking, so this probably would have been uh, 97, 96, 97, about when the internet started coming around. Um, it, it started speeding up, but it sped up at the, I mean, you, you said these words, wild, wild west. I mean, if you if you thought like 2010 was a wild, wild west, you should have been around you know, 2000, 2001 in, the, in that arena. And um, I think it was a little too crazy, right? And we, we had a lot of, we, we were just, anything could happen. And so it, as a customer, I like to hear that, you know, and I know that for software developers, they hate to get slowed down. Right. You just hate that. You're like, oh, you know, but I think it's good for the consumer for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is some like I, I, I've been thinking a lot about like the the good and bad friction, um, yeah. meaning like more and more were like every especially as a, like a software engineer, you you're kind of at a very low, like you, you can iterate so quickly on, unlike if you're a carpenter or something, you can build something so quickly and test it. And you kind of want that speed as well for being able to get it from your machine to whatever production server it's going to run on. Um, and in some cases, like adding that, that friction a little bit just to, to perform those checks or get one extra set of eyes on it or whatever it is, um, is actually a good thing and not a bad thing. It, it more when you when it's, there's so little friction that there's not enough um, analysis of what's actually going on, and it's just too easy to get it from 
here to there, or I guess it's just like you want those checks to be baked in. So maybe it's not so much like friction of somebody telling you you have to do something, but a machine or some other tool checking it. Um, I feel like I'm not like conveying it well, but this well, is an idea of like, it's so seamless that you don't even have a chance to think about it is not always safe. I like to think of it as, you know, speed and safety are always in conflict and in tension with one another. And that's a healthy thing if you can find the middle balance, right? Because you, on this one hand of the spectrum, you need to continue to deliver new features and capabilities um, that support your customers as well as deliver just like the kind of quality of life, operational maintenance of software, keeping it patched, keeping it up to date. Um, And then on the other hand, um, you don't want to, you know, take one step forward and three steps back by pushing out a bad release that damages customer trust or causes a security incident or um, degrades the platform in a minute way that no one has really figured it out until three months later. And so um, putting in those, I, you know, I call them guardrails, right? Putting in those guardrails into your software release process you want to strive for automation as much as possible because humans don't scale. But at the same token, you want that automation to be like, you want to leverage that automation to do the work, right? So the actual integration testing, the actual um, security scanning, the vulnerability scanning, um, and and adding some of those guardrails and checks that are maybe business specific to a given use case it's i don't think they're 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 welcome things right as long as they can have some bounded expectations around what their runtime is and what their value is to you in the release cycle um but i i think about this all the time right like if you think about most software development organizations in the last 10 years right um when companies were doing waterfall and I mean doing waterfall at scale, or maybe like they thought they were agile because they released once a quarter, but like they really weren't agile. Right. There were kind of two camps, right? There was the one side that was like, Oh, I'm a developer and I'm developing a new widget, so to speak. And then there's this other camp called QA or integration and test, or I'm a QA engineer. Right. And the two sides were just diametrically opposed in some respects. Why? Because the developers could never communicate clear acceptance criteria. So the, Q, the QA team used to you know, come up with the acceptance criteria and then test your code. Um, and it would be this constant back and forth kind of challenge and exercise between like, how, how do humans on the QA team um, functionally define what is considered correct code And then how are they finding bugs and cataloging those bugs and then sending them back to development? Um, But over time, as agile software development practices came into um, focus, I really think, you know, the industry, so to speak, for being a QA engineer has tremendously shrinked in the last 10 years because, again, like we're as these software systems get bigger, more complex, and people want more features in less time, you just can't scale humans by adding more people to the QA team and supporting a project, right? Um, So historically, there was a ton of friction between development, 
QA integration and production because there's this army of humans standing in the way between developers and their production experience for customers. And now it's really, you know, what types of automated guardrails and tooling are you leveraging to um, provide that that capability? Um, but it's fundamentally a different business optic in terms of what humans are involved. Um, and now where previously you were hiring QA engineers, now you're hiring DevOps and DevSecOps engineers whose job is to help the automation, help get the releases out quicker, help identify security relevant parts of your infrastructure that can be optimized. Um, and really, you know, the business changed very much to improving velocity with the um, by kind of retasking humans to do something uh, in a new and, and different way in the software lifecycle. Yeah. I also have observed that like QA role and like it's still a part of what you do just as like writing the code. And I think like also for people that are dedicated, like, Oh, this, you write the code, but this other person builds the, uh, or handles the like CI CD pipeline. I think there are still people who just work on like that, getting the code from the code repository to the production server, but more and more, um, that is also part of the the developer that writes the, the features as well. And I think that it's kind of the same thing with the QA engineer, that, that role. Some of that, I think, like you said, has been automated where there's checks and scans and, and things like that that do part of that role. But the, the acceptance criteria ver verification and making sure that it functions the way it's supposed to semantically, that, that should be part of the software engineer's role, the one that's, that's writing initially. I think that's actually like a healthy thing to have, not just be like, oh, I'm the gas and the QA team is the brakes and they're, they're going to find the bugs and I'm going to write them. But uh, to, to be like both sides of, of that equation and trying to, to be, you know, risk averse um, and, and aware of like the, the potential for, for issues that happen and try and prevent them as early as possible before waiting. I think that's also kind of an example of like shifting left with, um, I guess security, but also with, with bug fixes, like try to get it as early as possible. Um, that involves taking some responsibility when you're writing it and even when you're defining the criteria for what's going to be written. Jim, having heard the discussion and kind of thinking about some of the software development, um, you know, products and web services. Gallup obviously has a very large uh, web experience uh, from the moment you hit gallup.com, the news through, you know, the different product teams. Um, how much of this software kind of life cycle related conversation does or doesn't resonate with what you're seeing at Gallup? And um, how do software developers at Gallup think about um security mindset um, as they're developing and releasing code? Yeah. That's a good question. I've been out of that space for a little while now. Yeah. Um, I just kind of see it from the outside and, and can't, like I said, I can't speak on behalf of that because uh, I'm just not, uh, not in there enough, but there is, I mean, certainly as we were thinking about, you know, Ashton, as you're talking about QA, you know, getting away from being a tester, so to speak, to almost being on the front end of it, of user acceptance. So like, 
hey, we're expecting this kind of this code to do some things. And you're, you you write to meet the test criteria as opposed to writing the code and then QA trying to figure out how to test it, right? Coming at the end from the beginning. And so, uh, you know, we've, we've seen some big, I, I think industry-wise, we've seen some shifts in that. At least that's what I'm, you know, those are the things that I hear um, from folks when I talk to them about that. So it's a different, um, you know, Christian, it's a different, we, we, um, it's a different world. Like, just like, just like Ashton saying, like, it's a completely in the last five years. And I think, and Ashton, let me ask you this question with the remote experience for you, did that change? Like, have you seen things in the last two years progress differently because we're working remotely and that was that a help or a hinder? on some of the things you were trying to move forward on? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm I like tech technically or, or socially. I like, like, yeah, no tech more technically than, than socially, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I think trying to, trying to like put it to words. I, I think just because of the, there's so much push to, to be, connecting socially in digital spaces, there was kind of a, a reflection on that in terms of where like the documentation and knowledge was as well. And this, this isn't quite what yeah. you're asking, but I think just kind of moving some of the um, things that were just inside of people's heads to actually be written down and, and, yeah. and uh, documented that way. But also um, I, I think like the whole process of that digitally interacting also led to more, um, just digital checks and scans and bots that that facilitated that and, and also kind of fed into the the actual writing and, and checking of the code. Um, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but yeah, just kind of thinking through, you know, um, you know, we I think we took advantage there was when we were all in person together and on a floor, there was some things you could do, you know, I think conversation often replaced or or was a poor um uh replacement for actual documentation or for right some of those kinds of things because you're like oh i'll just if i got a problem i'll just ask and um and then i think and and christian you can weigh in on this uh kind of as well i think with it with a, a more disparate nature of things with us with it being spread apart you had to do a different you kind of had to do some things differently, knowing I'm not going to get a chance to just talk to him. Now, I, I, I never took that seriously. And if I just needed, if I was going to talk to somebody across the hall, virtually, I just call them. I did, you know, I'd be like, Hey, you got a second. We need to talk and work through this. I'm not going to document this whole thing. Um, so maybe I circumvented the system, but Christian, in your experience in the, in these, these two years did, did, this new hybrid or or whatever we're going to call it, it, do you think from a software development perspective, it changed things? I think it certainly changed the engagement model of the software development life cycle. So when you think about like engineers all rallying at a whiteboard to solve a problem, um, that looks different in a hybrid work environment. Um, when you think about um, how to express kind of Ashton's point, express concepts that need to have permanence and not be tribal knowledge. Um, In theory, that shouldn't change. In practice, I think um, you get into this kind of sub-mode culture where 
people are at their desks for longer. Um, and that does seem to inspire more written stuff to take place. Um, the tribal knowledge moves from verbal conversations that you're having out loud to text messages that you're having with people in instant message. And then interestingly, you know, when it's three months later and you're trying to remember what the heck it was you were doing and why, like now you have this memory recall just by mechanism of moving that tribal engagement into a digital form and format. Um, in theory, you should always have, you know, high quality documentation and, um, uh, design diagrams and architecture, et cetera. And, you know, that shouldn't in theory change, whether you're in a pre or post COVID world. I think the reality though, is that one of the main limitations to why that documentation doesn't get to the place it should is because a lot of people resonate with the speed of business matters. And so it's convenient to cut some of those corners in the short term to kind of keep pace with whatever the latest deliverable or thing is. Um, so in some respects, I think the documentation discussion is helped by the fact that people are spending more dedicated focus time, I think, working hybrid or having the work from home um capabilities i don't know that it necessarily changed that the collaborative aspect other than um like the way i i conduct and run design reviews today is is very different than pre-covid right um pre-covid you'd have a team of engineers get into a room everyone would be handed a printout copy of the document everyone would get out their red pens. They'd spend the first 30 minutes of the meeting marking up the document and then the second half of the meeting would be spent discussion over relevant salient things. Um, Would you actually have like, is that something you've, you've literally done in the office? Yeah. Yeah. Very, very common Amazonian practice. You can read a lot online about like how Amazon does the one pager, the three pager or the six pager and how they're literally like printed out and you would mark it up. Yeah. Most, most technical meetings, especially, um, senior and principal engineers, they'd refuse to be distracted by their laptop. They'd demand a hard copy. So you used to always have to come to the meetings with pre-printed copies of your stuff and you'd be responsible for handing them out and red pens would be there and then people could kind of pick and choose. Um, but yeah, that was a lot of, a lot of trees were printed on for those reviews. <laughs> wow. That's such a non-technical uh, yeah. approach to it. I, I was actually thinking about this as like, that I think the whole move to remote work has also um, increased the desire for like quick responses to whatever it is you're trying to get. Right. And I, I, that also is reflected in questions that engineers have to other engineers and teams. Um, I've seen like more and more formal, like you fill out a form to submit a ticket versus just like talking to somebody and they'll make one for you or um, a lot more, in, in the we use slack like in slack itself having bots that will answer questions within um, specific channels about topics and they, they're like a lot of times pretty good like they answer a lot of common questions and i think um, some of those moves are good because you know you, you do get that answer and sometimes you don't even have to ask it because one thing i've noticed a lot more is um, it's a lot more conversations happen on slack rather than in person because they kind of have to you're not you can't walk over and talk to somebody um, and that is searchable as well, which is actually really convenient. You, you, 
if you talked about something even six months ago and you're trying to remember where where was that link they sent or what is it it's as simple as like a control f and mm-hmm. bring up some some relevant words and you can find it um so some of those things i think are good like maybe the quality of the discussions that you can have in slack is obviously not of the same quality that you'd have in person um, but for basic common questions and like the lowest common denominator of you know this is what the issue a lot of people face and this is how you solve it that has gotten a lot quicker and i think that is a result of the, the remote work yeah well i i think um Ashton, you came around to the question I was asking, which is, is super cool um, on that. And and I, and I do, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's a good a good way to summarize. And I think we've we've all seen those things make some changes. Some of them not great. Some of them pretty great. Um, you know, we're we're all better at doing this than we used to be. <laughs> you know, this yeah. what we, what we're doing tonight. It, it was it was pulling teeth sometimes to get people on video pre-pandemic, you know, oh, I, no, I, no, no. And now I'm just like, hey, flip your video on, you know, and we're working and they'll, I, I want to see them. Like I, I need to read body language. I want to, I want to see faces that used to not be possible. And it's, it's a lot better in the role I do. That's important. I don't write, I don't write any code, but I do spend a lot of time with people and getting, you know, interviewing them, so to speak. And it's important for me to see it. Christian, any final thoughts before I put a wrap on this thing? No, uh, pretty interesting discussion. We went from uh, data-driven mechanisms to uh, software-driven mechanisms, but yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a topic we don't talk about a lot in Cyber Frontiers, like how, how does software development uh, lifecycle actually influence the um, security um, um, assurance of, of code that's you know developed, deployed, and, and used by customers. So pretty important topic. Ashton, anything else uh, you want to add to this on the way out? Thanks for joining us, by the way. Always yeah. great to see you. But anything else you want to add? Uh, sorry if I took us a little bit off the rails into a, a, there, there were a no rails. low-level dirty details of, of software engineering. I'm not sure what the, the – uh, I guess I've kind of lost the, the thread on what the typical conversations are on these. But you know what? I think uh, – I uh, thank you for having me. I just It's nice to get to chat with you guys again. So yeah. I, I had fun. Likewise, there's no typical here on Cyber Frontiers. We just talk about basically whatever we want. I think it's a good, I mean, I think it was a good reminder just to kind of come back to the, to some basics for this and come, come back around to that, you know, as we think about that software development life cycle in it, in, you know, I, I it's, I, it's a different world than it was just even a couple of years ago. I, I hear both of you saying that whether it was, I think, listen, I think we were making changes regardless they, I think in some cases they were accelerated by the last couple of years. Um, some things were slowed down uh, and it is what it is, right? We've just gotten to this point and, and I think it's sometimes it's good to take a step back and review and go, especially as we return, whatever that means, right? It's going to be different for everybody in, in some regards. And I think we have to ask the question and I've been asking the teams that I work with this question, what are you going to keep? Like what worked that you're going to keep? Because I would hate for us to have gone through this whole exercise. And and they're like, oh, let's just, I mean, this was great, but we can't do that anymore because we have to be, why can't we bring some of that stuff that we learned during this time, bring it back, even if we're going to be in person or we're going to continue to work in a place that's hybrid. 
how, how do we continue to, to, to do and continue to do the best of it in the, in the way that we did it? So all good stuff. All good stuff. Christian Ashton, thanks for, <clears throat> thanks for coming on tonight and for catching up uh, with us. I'll remind folks uh, again, if you have any questions, you can always contact us, uh, Jim at the average guy.tv. Christian is Christian at the average guy.tv. Not too hard to remember. Find me on Twitter at Jay Collison. Christian, of course, is at Borg Whisper. And just a reminder, the average guy.tv powered by Maple Grove Partners gets secure, reliable, high speed hosting. Some of the best in the business, I think. Of course, the average guy.tv is powered by it. Uh, plans start. Uh, what we've been saying is uh, fighting inflation every chance we get. $10 a month, still the same price. You can get that. MapleGrovePartners.com. Uh, and we appreciate you guys coming out and listening for the for the couple of you that did that as well. And if hopefully, if you found this for the first time or you come back to it, hopefully you're enjoying it. Christian and I would always love your input in, in maybe some topics that you love to cover. And uh, whether we stay on or go off the rails, we'd love to have uh, your your input. Thanks for coming out uh, tonight. If you're listening live, thanks for listening. If you listen on the podcast, with that, we'll say goodbye.